0: Hello and welcome to That Science, the podcast exploring the meaning of science today. I am your host Susan O'Flynn and this is Is That Science? This week I'll be talking to Paul Knowles who is doing his PhD here at the University of Manchester and also a teaching assistant on the course I'm doing in my second semester which is The Crisis of Nature about eco-criticism. I got into contact with Paul after he delivered this fascinating lecture about how fiction is responding to the climate crisis And after our meeting, he very kindly agreed to come on the podcast to talk to me. So thank you, Paul. And I hope you enjoy our conversation. So hi, Paul, and welcome to Is That Science? Thank you. Thank you for having me. So today we're going to talk about eco-criticism, obviously, but I just thought just so our listeners could get to know you, do you mind telling us a bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, my name's Pauls, um, and I'm a second-year PhD student at Manchester University, doing English Literature and Eco-Criticism. Looking at the short story and empathetic responses, and how Eco-Criticism can make us consider the impact that human behaviours have had on the past, present, and possible future of landscape, and also considering how we can voice the more than human world to make stronger connections and to develop um, readers and critic uh, environmental consciousness and to see the world from a more than human perspective.
0: Brilliant, thank you so much. So before we get into eco-criticism, do you mind actually telling us what it is I mean is it is it a form of fiction is it a form of non-fiction or is it a field of research like what is what actually is
1: eco-criticism is a field of kind of critical research like gender studies like race studies um like colonial studies and it's a field of research that looks at literature texts in my example but it can be any kind of text through a lens that focuses on representations of the natural world and the biases in those representations so um, it can consider things like how are animals represented are animals represented as um, something that's meant to be dominated or are they, do they become products that become consumable or do animals have their own agency I'm looking at kind of environmental destruction and just even kind of looking at different genders relationship with the natural world so eco-criticism is a lens a very broad lens that looks at how the natural the nature or the natural world or the modern human world all these different terms that kind of represent the same thing is represented in literature or art and what kind of biases are associated with these representations
0: well i guess before we start properly getting into it do you want to kind of give a background to it do you want
1: to well it's it's conscientious it's a it's a, it's a difficult one to say when it starts. I think me and Vlad, who teach Crisis Nature course at the university, would argue that it starts with the 60s. So after the, the great development of the 50s and the 40s in nuclear technology, in pesticide, in kind of uh, anthropocentric behaviours and creation of products that meant that the destruction of an environment wasn't just local anymore, but was global. And then these critics, so... A good example of a critic might be Old of Leopold, who writes sanctuary Almanac*, and he's really considering how the canonisation of the landscape changes the landscape forever, doesn't change it for two or three years. So there's this new wave of criticism from the 60s with the counter- movement in America associated with the hippie movement, counter movement in America from the 60s and eco-criticism as we know it, as kind of modern critics know it, stems from texts like Leopold, Rachel Carson's and then the Population Bomb. So these kind of real important texts from the 60s that considers different environmental issues and the impact that human behaviour is having on what is perceived as natural landscapes.
0: In that criticism is there very much their focus on the destruction of the natural landscape or is it looking at the lateral landscape changing over a period of time as a result of human activity?
1: Yeah, I would say the first text of the 60s is really trying to come to terms with the consequences of developing this technology. So it really is the first kind of text of the 60s and really looking at the destruction of a landscape. I think that's where we say that eco criticism probably develops and becomes more sophisticated in kind of the 80s and the 90s where it becomes more developed and more probably about the relationships or the interrelationships. So a text that appears in the 90s, in 1990s, is Sexual Politics of Meat by Carol J. Adams, which looks at how the language that's used to describe meat is also the language that's used to sexualise and describe females, and looking at the kind of the politics behind that and who is creating this language what media companies created this language they kind of male owned and how this language objectifies both women and meat and animals and takes away their kind of agency or their political voice so i would say the 60s is really focused on the destruction of the landscape like rachel Carson's silent springs is really just making people aware of the destruction that's happened with pesticides and leopold by the mechanization of farming and then in the 80s the 90s 2000s we get things that different waves eco-feminism starts to come out of the second wave of feminism probably really develops late 70s 80s and then you get the vegetarian movement of the 90s that goes into the veganism movement of the late 90s to the 2000s so there's always developments in eco-criticism but i would say the early wave was really on destruction and then the later waves is looking more at the different interrelationships that apply
0: i think when i think of eco-criticism you seem to think of it as a very middle class and wealthy concern Looking at, looking at the broader concerns in culture, which doesn't really speak to a lot of the lived experiences of maybe working class or marginalized people. Do you feel like? In the early days, there was a, do you think there was a place for those marginalised voices in the movement? Or did that only come in the later developments? I think
1: it's an argument that can be argued both sides. I think because it came from scientists, this movement, and then was applied to literature at the academic level, the university level, the middle class level. Mm. Then I think there is always a criticism that eco-criticism and climate change is a middle class issue that the people who act on climate change are the people who've got time to kind of worry about it, and that working class indigenous populations don't have these issues, so climate isn't actually a consideration or a concern. But I think that's a bit too narrow of a focus, where there's a lot of indigenous writers who are really considering climate change, and they are in the 60s and the 70s, so Spivak is an eco-critic off the 60s and 70s who is considering climate change in Southeast Asia and considering how indigenous populations lost the voices to great corporations or as we did in Crisis of Nature cotton farmers in India who were led to suicide due to kind of the western corporations forcing genetically modified cotton onto these farmers but it was the voices of Indian journalists that made people aware of these issues. So I do think there has always been indigenous working class voices, but I think due to scientific elements of eco-criticism or the origins of eco-criticism, it was always associated with middle class because it seemed to be a field where there's a lot of factual data research where other lenses had been more psychological instead of psychological and social research instead of kind of the heavy data research that's associated with eco-criticism.
0: One thing that I thought about a lot is different cultures attitudes towards nature. I mean, in our Western culture, there seems to be, and I think you brought up in a lot of our classes is there seems to be a lot of looking at nature as something to be dominated and not really as its own kind of entity. But in other cultures, I'm probably maybe massively overgeneralizing here, but you look at you know a lot of indigenous cultures that appreciate the landscape and work with the landscape instead of trying to dominate it. do you feel like you know in you've mentioned Rachel Carson, the idea of thinking about nature as a separate entity and not something that can be dominated or exploited for capital gain was quite a new one in in the culture at the time or it was part it was uh, part of this whole environmentalist uh, movement do you think i
1: think yeah I think it's one where even now in environmentalism or criticism, you have many different schools of thought and many different critics and and yeah this is yeah so Hawking North is a writer who wrote a book who said how to be an environmentalist and then he left the environmentalist movement and he has some quite upsetting and quite disturbing right-wing ideologies about who control nature of who owns nature and I would say if you're looking at nature writing especially in the UK context, that it's only from the 2000s that we start to see more voices from other cultures writing nature writing. And a key theme of these other cultures writing nature writing is that they have felt excluded from the national parts of the UK. They felt like they hadn't belonged. And Paul King North is a writer who embodies this, who wants to protect nature from a very masculine perspective. And he can link it to Trump and what Trump was doing in America and how he presented a nature that was very nationalistic. America should control its national resources, control its coal, and that that shouldn't be being interfered by international environmental laws that didn't know the American context. So I would say that there's always been different debates, but I think if you look at the history of the environmental movement, I would say there has always been Indigenous voices there. How well they've been heard is another issue. Um, Like the 1950s nuclear testing on the Polynesian islands. There's always been Polynesian critics writing about the horrific nuclear fallout. Have they had the same access to the media and same representation of the media and Western media to have their voices heard? the scientific community, probably not. And that is, we get into issues of representation, but I think those voices have always been there. How well heard or how much access they've had is another debate. And that's how I sum it up. I don't think indigenous voices get the same press coverage or the same academic weighting in the mainstream media, not in the academic media, but in the mainstream media. There may be scientists who have won gold, Nobel Prizes or who fit into kind of Western Hegelian thought or Enlightenment thought? So that's really interesting debate mm. and argument.
0: What would you say are the most prominent voices in the field? And what I say in the academic field, more specifically in the academic field, whose ideas are the most prominent? What What are the most popular trends right now?
1: Well, there's a couple. There's a rewilding trend or the wilding trend, and that's a very controversial argument and debate. And what does rewilding or wilding mean? So there's George Mombat who writes Feral. He really is really interested in rewilding and he goes to a town in Wales and he has this debate with a coal miner in Wales about rewilding and wilding. And the coal miner says your argument that this is a middle class issue and the working class voices have never been heard about what happens to the landscape. But Mombat in Feral really writes an interesting argument about rewilding which is quite scientific-based. And then you've got Isabel Tree, who writes the book that actually called Rewilding. Her and her husband buy a farm, and they give it over to nature. And she looks at the biodiversity that comes back and what is the value of the biodiversity. Mombit talks about tropic cascading as well, which is an interesting one. And that tropic cascading is, if we reintroduce wolves back into Scotland, that is a better natural solution of dealing with the deer population that is eating all the new trees, eating all the new plants before they can grow to maturity. And that's causing devastation to the Highlands of Scotland. And he makes a very compelling case about reintroducing wolves, and that wolves are not reintroduced more by historical social fear of predators, instead of any kind of scientific reason for not introducing wolves back. And then you've got, so moving away from the wilderness argument you've got critics who are looking at issues of lost landscape or forgotten landscapes or restoring landscape so helen Macdonald and albert write about solastasia and the power of solastasia now solastasia is a nostalgia for the landscape as it once was and this is a really powerful force trying to create empathy and respect for a landscape and restoring the landscape to what it once was but is that even possible to do and then if you're looking at feminist eco criticism then Emily Carr is a really interesting feminist eco-critic who hates the eighties and nineties movements and wants to modernize it and wants to consider how we make eco-feminists more inclusive to include all voices, because one of the criticisms of the second wave of feminism and eco-feminism that sprung from the seventies, eighties, was that it wasn't inclusive of different voices from black communities, Southeast Asian community, that these voices were excluded. So yeah, there's a lot of interesting work that's going on, but I think big debates around ecofeminism or in general nature and inclusion, then the debate about rewilding and then the debate of kind of solastasia. And are we trying to go back to a wilderness or landscape that doesn't exist? And maybe what we need to create is a more harmonious landscape or do we try and create a prehistoric or free human landscape? And is that actually ethical? Now, someone who's not an eco-critic, but a fiction writer, Kim Stanley Robinson, in the Ministry of the Future, writes about giving large waves of land to nature and calls them nature corridors and imagines how that works in America and India. So it's lots of interesting debates. But I think the big three at the moment are rewilding and the biodiversity and how we increase biodiversity. The second big debate is solastasia and returning to a past landscape that it once was and getting rid of agribusiness. And then kind of the third debate about the inclusivity off the, eco, the environmental movement. So Catherine Jamie writes a really interesting criticism that says a lot of eco-fiction or the nature writing at the moment is very masculine, very male, and doesn't have a place for the softer feminine voice. And yeah, Catherine Jamie's is, is Scottish writer, Scottish poet. She writes some amazing works called Sightseeing. And it's just an amazing essay collection where she considers the feminine voice in eco-criticism and how it's been eradicated by this masculine rewilding voice. But yeah, those are the debates, I think, that are quite current and hot at the moment.
0: That's such a good overview. Do you think that there seems to be a, a shift towards optimism nowadays, especially when it comes to public engagement in the idea of climate change, especially? I mean, do you think there seems, not optimism, but a shift away from the dystopian narratives and the catastrophe narratives that characterised a lot of earlier writing? I mean, we were just talking about Silent Spring. That to me, I haven't read it, but it seems to characterise a lot of um, anxieties around the destruction of biodiversity. Do you feel like a lot of the narratives nowadays have, especially when it comes to public engagement, have much more an emphasis on positive narratives? I mean, you just talked about rewilding. A lot of those narratives to me have the sound that they are trying to show the positives of engaging with the natural world and offer an alternative positive reality instead of the slightly more terrifying ones that we're faced with now, do you think there's more of a shift towards optimism now, or is there, is that... Too- I, I, I,
1: like anything, I think it's a very yeah. nuanced argument. I do think what has probably changed in the last 15 years is that critics, scientists, writers have learnt that without hope, without a sense of optimism, then the environmental crisis can't be tackled whatsoever. So I think where there's a disconnect between the science community and the critical community or the writing community or however you want to express that community is the scientific community are still giving dire dire warnings so if you look at any un research or any research in oceans warming of the oceans which have been then the scientific data or research is dire it's like we, ha- we have gone past the critical point where the political the social the literary representation is more hopeful and we're starting to move away from prevention to sustainable to ideas of sustainability or adaptation so I think the biggest change that's happened is prevention and we're not going to prevent climate change to now a more maybe hopeful tone of adaptation that we can live with the effects of climate change that we can mitigate the effects of climate change and that may be a very human perspective that human beings or why human beings have been so successful their ability to adapt and change to any landscape that the planet has thrown at them. And maybe technological advancements like geoengineering, carbon capture, maybe that's making people hopeful, but there is a big school of thought that thinks this hope is misplaced and believes in technological determinism, that this technological determinism is not a useful thing because people are thinking that there will be a savior or a solution to climate crisis. So I think there is more hope in the narratives From a political, social construction point of view, if you're looking at the hard scientific data, I think that data is as dire and as dystopian as it's always been, maybe even more so. So I think there is a wider disconnect between science and the scientific data and the political messages that are being said at the moment.
0: And then I guess it's a pretty obvious question, but then do you think that's where eco-criticism and especially fiction can act as a bridge between the, the world of science, which may not be very easy for the normal person to understand, and kind of communicating it to the masses? Do you think that's where eco-criticism can bridge the gap?
1: Um, Helen MacDonald in Vespa Flight, which is a collection of eco-critical essays, and she considers many of the topics, but she writes at the start of that, that we need science and we need literature. We need science to tell us the rate of these declines, to give us the factual evidence. But we need literature to explain what these losses means. So what does it mean if you were to explain to your children or your grandchildren what an elephant was? If an elephant has become extinct, what does that loss personally mean to you? What does a loss of bird species, so swallows, are in massive decline in the UK? What would it mean if you no longer saw a swallow darting in the air? What would it mean if you no longer could, yeah, have access to the natural environment of ancient woodland in the UK? Because the ancient woodlands have been knocked down for h two. h two knocked down quite a lot of ancient woodland. So I think we need, I think we need eco-criticism and literature and art to provoke empathetic responses that the science or the hard data can't do on its own. I think the hard data can shock, I think the hard data can cause discussion, but I don't know... In my it's a very personal opinion. You know, lots of people will disagree with me. I think we need literature and art, and eco-criticism, to create an empathy, to create a connection that maybe is missing from the hard scientific data. And if we don't have empathy, then can we change? Can we change anything? Now, some people say that's too utopian, and I'm being too utopian here, but. My own personal belief is we need to create these empathetic responses. Otherwise, we just become more and more disconnected. Yeah, dis- disconnected to the natural landscapes. And I think even taking from the two, early 2000s, technology, the design of metropolitans and cities and urban spaces, there's a big disconnect now. I was watching a program last night with Richard Attenborough, and it was all about the design of cities and how nature can be incorporated in cities. And he gave some great examples from Southeast Asia and some of the big metropolitans there. And what's missing European cities or European planning is that green spaces seem to be an aesthetic, nothing to do with biodiversity. So what we had in the UK recently was, I think it it was one of the town councils down south that pulled out all the ancient trees overnight and there was uproar. It's either Plymouth or Portsmouth. I can't quite remember. And people were up in arms at all these old trees. And then the council kind of said, oh, but we're making a greener space. And I think there's a danger then when councils or politicians say they're making a greener space. Are we really doing this or are we creating an aesthetic of greenness? So a lot has been done about, oh, we're planting trees. But what trees are we planting? We're destroying biodiversity that's been created over 200, 300, 400 years with these ancient woodlands. Mixed species of trees. And then people say, oh, we can offshoot this by planting woodlands. But what usually happens is the same trees are grown in very rows, very much like an orchard. It's not the same as having ancient woodland. And I think rewilding has those issues attached with it. What do we actually mean by rewilding? What landscape are we creating? And what landscapes do we think we can recapture? And are we then sacrificing the here and now for an idea of the future? So I think empathy is really important to Understand how people are feeling to promote discussion between different people, and maybe to just promote ideas of respect or respectful dialogue that seems to be missing from a lot of modern arguments.
0: I remember last time we were talking about the idea of pronouns in nature, and I think that's that's a really interesting to look at because I mean, you know, the idea of oh, how do you represent a tree? What kind of pronoun is it? What does that mean if you give them a female pronoun over a male pronoun? What does that communicate about our relationship with nature? And I think it's a really interesting perspective to have on the representation of nature in literature as well I mean I we talked about it last time but one of my favorite books is The Secret Life of Trees uh, by Elif Shafak and she's talking about communicating the experience of a tree and the story is told from the perspective of a tree and I think that's one way in which I was particularly struck by the narrative was by telling it from this completely different viewpoint and what do you think about the idea of representing nature through pronouns i mean do you think nature needs pronouns
1: yes i I think but timothy morton has a great section of this in his book human human kinship and his book called kinship creating human relationships with non-human world and timothy morton is a scientist very very amazing scientist and he considers in the opening of this book how do you rate relationships of empathy with nature and how do you voice the nature world and the danger of it So it creates all sense of otherness. It's from Helge and thought, the Enlightenment thought, and nature is seen as something that is other, doesn't share the same emotions or agency as human beings. And that creates a lot of issues. And we're now 100, 200 years down the line of this it that's always been scientific research. And the results aren't great if we're looking at, we could be entering the sixth mass extinction right now of animal species. In the world. So it, to me, seems to lack all kind of respect or consideration for the subject that's being studied. Now, there's dangers with she and he, which Morton talks about. And one of the dangers with she is that nature has always been seen, or has been seen in definitely the Western perspective, as very feminine. And that and nature being feminine and the Mother Gaia theory that nature feminine linked to ideas of male patriarchal control and domination of both females and the natural landscape but there is an argument that she also creates yeah empathy through kind of maternal relationships and that's very troublesome as well he will create other issues but they there i'm probably in favor of using the species scientific or latin name instead of it and actually using a name i think creates respect but I, i i know this is a controversial issue and Many scientists will say that we need to use it to create that distance, to create this scientific distance that doesn't afford any biases in research. I find it troublesome and I find it maybe too rational. And maybe we've gone down a path of rational thought for too long without any empathetic responses in the scientific community. But it's a debate to be had.
0: That's, that's a really good point as well. And... I think also another thing that you focused on in your lecture was the idea of how do you portray the animal experience? Is it? I think it's very easy for humans to frame everything in human terms in something that we're very familiar with. But how do you convey? I mean, I look specifically to the work of Michael Mopurgo, who's very much so portraying nature from a very tragic perspective, I think. You know, War Horse is a very tragic story told from the perspective of a horse. That's
1: the only one I can think of offhand, hand. But yeah, so, no, that there's quite yeah. a lot. Quite yeah, a lot the that was so, the one uh, the only one I could
0: think of
1: offhand. Annie Poole in Baskin's, um what's the book's based around First Nation it tells two different family histories. One's First Nation people of Canada and one's Western European settlers who come from France, who destroyed the landscape in the successful logging company. But Poole does voice the non human world. At one point the First Nation people taught to a whale and the way they will give warning against the settlers and say you need to lose the landscape. very famous book of the early 2000s is Whale Rider, which is told from a whale's perspective. But we've had have, we have fiction from the modernist age with Virginia Woolf writing fiction from the perspective of a dog. So there's lots of different writers writing from the viewpoint of the more-than-human world. And I think, yeah, it's going to create ethics. Can we ever not voice a more-than-human, from from human voice or human bias? But I don't think that's the point. I think the point is to try and create an empathetic response even doing the four exercise or the four experiment thinking through an object that isn't human or anthropocentric is important and i think it's important work that these writers are doing because it it challenges our perspective i think anything that challenges our perspective or the normal perspective is good work it's not going to be perfect it's going to have many ethical quandaries but i i see the work as essential because i think it at least causes debate or discussion i think it can sometimes be missing
0: Mm. well i think i think that's a i think that's a really good note to end on the eco criticism is a really important way of constructing empathy especially in you know the non-scientific community yes so thank you so much for making the time to talk to me
1: no thank you thank and you it's for been a really great
0: chat thank you so much
1: thank you and I, I hope the podcast goes well
0: yes stephanie goodbye bye now Thank you so much again to Paul for coming to chat to me about this absolutely fascinating topic. I hope you've learned something from this episode and enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed having the conversation. As usual, any of the topics that we talked about today will be in the show's notes. So do go check them out if you want further information. And make sure to tune in for next week's episode with Amelia. And make sure to tune in to next week's episode with Amelia for What's Science, where she'll continue talking about clinical trials. Thank you so much.